Welcome to Archaeoed, a podcast about the civilizations of the ancient Americas. You know, the ones that Western history books spend about a page discussing. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnhart. I've been an archaeologist, an explorer, and a seeker of esoteric knowledge all around the Americas for over 30 years now. This podcast is just me, freed from the lecture podium and talking like we're just having a beer together. Sometimes I'll tell stories of my adventures. Other times I'll share what I've learned about the various cultures that were here before Columbus. Basically, it'll be anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast, Beholden the No One. I'm just having fun with it. I hope you do too. So without further ado, kick back, relax, and let's get started. Season 3, Episode 9, The Mesoamerican Ball Game. For this final episode of Season 3, I've decided to talk about something fun and easy, the Mesoamerican Ball Game. It's fun because it's a game. It's easy because the evidence of the game is everywhere in Mesoamerica. Let's get into this topic by way of the five W's. Who, what, when, where, and why. So who? I can safely say that every civilization that called Mesoamerica its home played the ball game. What? It was a sport with formal rules. Two teams squared off within a rectangular court. They bounced a rubber ball back and forth across a center line. The goal was to get the ball past the opposing team into their end zone, or to send it in such a way that they couldn't return it. Some versions had rings on the walls to pass the ball through. When? It began at least 4,000 years ago, and it's still being played today. Where? In every corner of Mesoamerica. The farthest northern court is in the ruins of Pakime in the Chihuahuan Desert, just about three hours south of the U.S. border. They're found south into Honduras and El Salvador. I keep reading about one in Nicaragua, but I can't quite find the proof of it. Finally, why? At the simplistic level, because it's a game and humans love to compete. But the ball game was also an integral part of Mesoamerican creation stories, which gives it a religious and symbolic meaning too. So, we have an ancient and pervasive sport played in Mesoamerica. How pervasive? Well, we have over a thousand known ball courts. And knowing much of Mesoamerica remains untouched by archaeology, there's no doubt at least a thousand more. Another basic question is, just how old is the Mesoamerican game and how does it compare globally? Within Mesoamerica, the oldest evidence is pretty spread out. It's unclear if there was a single place it started. The flat-out oldest evidence we have is a set of a dozen rubber balls found in the Olmec site of El Manatee. El Manatee was a lucky find in a swamp. The objects found there were in an anaerobic soil environment. That means it was starved of oxygen. It's the same kind of environment where Europe's bog bodies were found. There were some amazing wooden statues recovered there and the rubber balls. 
the dates for the balls come back at about 1600 BCE. The problem is that there are no known Olmec ball courts. The oldest ball court is from a site near the Pacific coast in Chiapas, Paso de la Amada. It's hundreds of miles away from El Manatee and dates to about 1400 BCE. Culturally, it's probably early Maya. The next oldest ball court comes in at almost the same time, 1370 BCE, but it's in the mountains of Oaxaca, recently found at the site of Etlantongo. Again, far from the Olmec homeland, probably early Zapotec or Mixtec. And both of those earliest ball courts were built in stone. As I've said in other contexts, by the time you build something in stone, it's probably not your first attempt. So the game was almost certainly older than those courts. But let's just go with the El Manatee dates of 1600 BCE. How does that compare with the origins of other ancient sports around the world? The answer to that question depends a bit on how we define sports. In its broadest meaning, sports are physical activities involving skill and competition. Webster's Dictionary wants to add for pleasure to the definition, but I don't know about that. Some people are serious as a heart attack about sports, and some of the ancient ones were downright deadly. If you believe that human competition is instinctual, then we could guess that sports are as old as humans themselves. Heck, I bet they're older than humans. Can we say that no Neanderthal or Homo erectus ever started a foot race against his buddy? I think we can safely assume, though, that the first sports, whoever played them, were ones that didn't require equipment. Competitions like running and jumping, swimming, fighting, etc. But archaeology can't see those. No game equipment, no artifacts. Early art is another potential way to see ancient sports. It's certainly all over the art of Mesoamerica. Humans have been painting on cave walls for tens of thousands of years. As of 2021... The oldest cave paintings are from 45,000 years ago in Indonesia. Some cave art depicts scenes that look like sports, like groups of men running together. But they may be in a foot race, or maybe they're all just running from a lion. We're not sure. By the time we see those same sports in the Greek Olympics, we know we're looking at sports. But that really doesn't start until 800 BCE. So, let's narrow our focus on sports involving balls. When and where did that start? Outside of Mesoamerica, China has the oldest known ball game. It was called Kuju. The ball was made of stitched leather and filled with either feathers or hair. Players could only kick the Kuju ball. They couldn't pick it up or even touch it. The goal was to kick it into a pole standing midfield or through a pair of poles at one end. The ball didn't bounce because it wasn't rubber. It was more like a big hacky sack. And there weren't teams. It was just a free-for-all involving upwards of 50 players. 
Nevertheless, FIFA has proclaimed Kuju as the origin of soccer. How old is Kuju? That answer just changed last year when archaeologists found three Kuju balls in a grave dating back to 1100 BCE. The earliest evidence before that was 900 years younger, so there was quite a revolution, a paradigm shift, happening in China. But still, that doesn't beat the 3,600-year-old Olmec ball, does it? There's another sport that developed in Greece about 500 BCE, something like field hockey. It's said to be the origin of not just hockey, but also golf. But the object being hit was a rock, not a ball. Is that an unfair distinction? Well, maybe, but it's my podcast, so I'm disqualifying it. Now, Europe did eventually invent a legitimate ball, but it wasn't until about 1000 CE. And it was gross. Their ball was an inflated pig bladder. They'd blow it up with their mouths and then sew it closed. It turned out oblong, and modern footballs get their shape from it, and also their nickname, pigskin. The game they played was equally horrendous. It was called mob ball, and that's exactly what it was, a mob fighting over the ball. There were few rules beyond trying to maintain possession of the ball. Dozens of people would play at once, stomping, smashing, and slamming at one another. Eventually, it evolved into rugby and much later American football. But again, this mob ball game was way later than the Mesoamerican version. So, that means that Mesoamerica takes the prize for the world's oldest ball game. And they also get the credit for the oldest team sport, even if we include Greek field hockey, which I already nixed. Mesoamerica had team sports over 1,000 years earlier. So, with that little global comparison complete, this is a good place for my first commercial break. When I return, we'll focus in on how the Mesoamerican game was played. The ancient Maya calendar. I'm fascinated by it, and though I've been studying it for decades, I still learn new things about it all the time. I call it ancient, but I and literally millions of modern Maya people are still tracking it into modern time. Towards that end, I've created two products to help people better understand it. My annual Maya wall calendar and an iPhone app called simply Maya Calendar. Through these tools, you can figure out today's date, or tomorrow's, or a Maya date thousands of years in the past. The app will even calculate your Maya birthday and tell you about your personality traits and destiny according to modern Maya daykeeper priests. The Maya calendar app is available through iTunes, but both it and my annual Maya wall calendar are available through my website, mayan-calendar.com. That's mayan with an n-calendar.com. Check it out. And I'm back. Let's get into some of the specifics of the game. First, the ball itself. 
Mesoamerica had a resource that no other part of the world had, rubber trees. Cutting into their bark releases a white, runny latex. The tree grows best in Tabasco and Chiapas, Olmec territory. When the Spanish arrived, the Aztecs were collecting rubber patties as tribute from that area. They called it the Olmen, the place of rubber in their language. And that's where we get the name Olmec. But you can't just collect latex sap and make a ball. Alone, that natural latex will biodegrade like any other organic matter. Modern rubber is created through a process we call vulcanization. Sulfur is added to the latex, which helps it congeal. Then heat and pressure molds it into desired shapes, like car tires or balls. The Maya invented a similar process. Talking to modern Maya, researchers have concluded that their source for the sulfur was morning glory flowers. Morning glory has sulfur in its vines, and it's one of the only plants in the jungle that has that. While I was living in Palenque, I decided to try it for myself. There were local rubber trees, and morning glory was growing all along the roadsides. I collected it, and I ruined my garlic press by squeezing juice out of morning glory vines. Sitting alone, latex sap would remain a viscous liquid for days. But adding morning glory juice and stirring made it congeal within a minute. At first, I squeezed it into a Christmas cookie pan and made some rubber Christmas trees. Eventually, I made a bunch of small balls. They were solid rubber and bouncy like a super ball. Finally, I made one about four inches in diameter. That was 22 years ago, and I still have it. It's turned black and a bit lumpy, but it still bounces great. The process taught me an important fact, or reiterated it. The Maya were chemists. Making a good ball took a lot of trial and error and experimentation. They had to find the right materials and then put them in the right proportions and then cook it at the right temperature and the time to cook it, all those things. So how did they figure out how to use morning glory? My theory is that they developed a short list of magical plants and then experimented with combining them. A little-known fact about morning glory is that it's also hallucinogenic. Hence, it was probably on their magical list already, and then later they discovered that it could transform latex into rubber. So, let's move on to the nature of ball courts. They have some standard elements that they all share in common, but also great variety. From the beginning, let's not underestimate the impressive nature of Mesoamerican ball courts. They were stone-built, architecturally sophisticated structures. They had playing fields, seating for spectators, and often beautifully sculpted elements. Their distinctive and diagnostic form makes ball courts one of the only building types that Mesoamerican archaeologists can confidently identify. Most other structures we give vague names like temple, or administrative building, or residence. A standard ball court 
has a pair of rectangular buildings with a rectangular playing field in between them. The interior sides of those two structures slope inwards towards the playing field. The ball would roll or bounce up onto the slopes, landing on the opponent's side. A center line divides the court into two sides, one for each team. Behind the teams are the out-of-bounds lines. In practice, the courts worked a lot like tennis or volleyball, with the ball going back and forth across the center line. From above, most courts look like a big capital I, with the trunk being the playing lane and the top and bottom lines being the out-of-bounds areas. Some, but not all, ball courts had a pair of stone rings at the top of their sloping walls, one on each side lined up with the court's center line. If the ball went through one of those rings, it was an instant win for the team that did it. That leads us neatly into the rules of play, and honestly, we don't know much about it. We do have the rules the Aztecs were using at contact, and we have many freeze-frame images from gameplay in ancient art. But the game was played for thousands of years. Surely the rules and even the game itself changed significantly over time. And it's quite likely that there were multiple games that could be played within those courts. If you think about it, how many ball games do we play on a standard school field? We play football, baseball, soccer, kickball, field hockey, etc. If we theorize the same for Mesoamerica, some of the odd elements of the game's depictions, like people holding bats and paddles, make more sense. Another logical point to mention is that we have formal stadiums today for our sports, but the vast majority of games take place in backyards and urban alleyways. I suspect it was much the same in Mesoamerica, kids bouncing balls down the street in every neighborhood. In the traditional, most popular version of the game, players were not allowed to hit the ball with their hands or feet. They bounced it off their hips, thighs, or chest. The ball was solid and heavy, so they wore pads to avoid injury. We often cannot identify a ball player in ancient art by the fact that they're wearing those pads. The Spanish said that every Aztec player had big bruises all over their bodies. Those pads were necessary. If the ball stopped or went past the team into the end zone, that was a scored point. We don't know how many points were needed to win, but getting the ball through a ring on the wall was an instant win. The size of the teams varied. It could be played just one-on-one, -on -one, or each side could have seemingly up to eight players. The size of the courts varied from place to place, too. The largest one is in Chichen Itza. It's an amazing 93 by 30 meters in size. Most courts were much smaller. I've seen a few that were less than 10 meters in length. Clearly, large teams would be crowded in those kinds of courts. There's also no standard directional orientation for ball courts. 
I wish there was, because that would imply some sort of astronomical association. But the orientations are all over the place. Now, I also want to mention controversial Mesoamerican ball courts, namely ones in the American Southwest and the Caribbean. In Arizona, we have an amazing ancient civilization that we call the Hohokam. They were definitely trading with Mesoamerica. The artifacts prove it. That's a fact. But there are Hohokam architectural features called ball courts, and I just don't think they are. The famous Southwest archaeologist Emil Howry made that identification first. And while I respect and admire his work, I think he got that one wrong. There are over 200 Hohokam so-called ball courts known, but they're very, very different than those in Mesoamerica. They're sunken into the ground, like many Mesoamerican courts, but they're oval-shaped, not the capital I shapes to the south. They have an enclosure wall around them, and then they have two entry openings on either end. There's no detectable center line or out-of-bounds markers. On top of those significant architectural differences, we have another problem. Not a single rubber ball found in the entire Hohokam world. Much of Hohokam territory is dry desert, perfect for preserving a rubber ball. But in over a hundred years of archaeology, not one single one has been found. In the visitor center of one Hohokam site I visited, there was a glass case with a couple of baseball-sized round rocks. The tag said, Hohokam Balls. I laughed to myself, thinking, what? They were throwing rocks at each other in their supposed ball courts? Now, I could be wrong, and I'm definitely in the minority on this one, but I think that they're dance grounds, not ball courts. Seeing how important public dance performances are to modern indigenous communities in the Southwest today, that just makes more sense to me. The other ball game I wanted to mention here is Batty. It's a game that was played on the islands of the Caribbean. These games were witnessed by the Spanish at contact. Bartolome de las Casas saw it and wrote a short commentary. Like the Mesoamerican version, it was played with a ball and two teams, and they also couldn't use their hands or feet, so very Mesoamerican in that regard. But it also had significant differences. The teams were 10 to 30 people. The courts had a stone border, but no formal architecture. There were no sloping walls or rings. The Spanish accounts are few and vague, and then sadly, the pandemic diseases wiped everyone out in the Caribbean, leaving no one left to play the game. Some archaeologists see Bate Court's precedence in ceremonial plazas in South America. Others say it must have been at least inspired by Mesoamerica. I'm in the inspired camp, but I don't go as far as suggesting Maya colonizers. If it was that, the courts would be eye-shaped. The bottom line is that Batty 
is not the Mesoamerican ball game. It was something else. Okay, this is the right place for a final commercial break. When I return, I'll try to cram way too much into the final 10 minutes of this episode. Another commercial by me? Stranger still, this one is a commercial about Archeoed. My little podcast grows in popularity with every episode, but I still haven't reached the 10,000 downloads per month needed to attract commercial advertisers. Until that happens, Patreon is Archeoed's only source of financial support, besides my own wallet, that is. I do this out of passion, not for money, but the reality is that Archeoed can't continue to grow without it. So I'm asking, if you like my podcast, will you please consider supporting it through Patreon? There are multiple tiers of support starting as low as just $5 a month. If you can, please visit patreon.com backslash Archeoed and become one of my Archeohead community members. That's patreon.com backslash Archeoed. Let's make something great together. The ball game was more than a game to the civilizations of Mesoamerica. It was part of their religions. Multiple creation stories involve the ball game. In central Mexico, there was a collection of creation stories, interrelated but slightly different from culture to culture. But one of the unifying elements is the existence of a ball court sitting at the base of a mountain. The gods make water spill forth from the ball court and it waters the first corn crops. The site of El Tajin in northern Veracruz has an amazing 18 ball courts. Most cities have just one or two. Some of El Tajin's courts have elaborately carved scenes on their walls. My old friend and colleague Rex Kuntz did his dissertation on El Tajin and found much of that art to be tied to the creation stories. His work also made sense of an odd feature, plumbing underneath El Tajin's ball courts. Apparently, they were built as symbolic of the ball court that watered the first cornfields. The ball game's involvement in the Maya Popol Vuh creation story is much more extensive. Central to the story is two sets of twins who play ball games against the Lords of Death. The first set of twins gets invited down to the underworld to play ball with the Lords of Death, and they end up getting killed. The twin named Hunapu gets his head cut off and hung in a tree in the Lord's garden. His body is buried in the center of the underworld ball court. The tree sprouts fruits that look just like Hunapu's head, and one of them spits into the hand of a princess named Blood Moon. It makes her instantly pregnant. Worried that her death god dad will be angry, she sneaks up to the surface world to give birth. Hunapu's mother helps her deliver a second set of twins. Those are her grandchildren. 
Those twins also get summoned to a ball game in the underworld, but they fare better than their father. They win game after game by day, but must face perilous challenges to survive each night. At one point, the twin named Shibalenke's head gets chopped off by a bat, and the Lords of Death kick it around like a ball. But the animals help him get his head back, and the twins keep winning. Finally, they find a way to defeat the Lords of Death, and they resurrect their father. They dig his body out of the ball court and put his head back on. Together, they take a canoe into the sky, where their father becomes the Maze God. Now, that story explains a surprising amount of confusing archaeological finds. For one thing, we see a lot of sacrifice imagery associated with Maya ball courts, specifically decapitation. Now, that could be war, but in this perspective, clearly that's also connected to the decapitations in the Popol Vuh. One time in my 20s as a grad student, I was in an excavation on an island in Laguna de On in Belize. The co-director, Rob Rosenswig, had me excavating a feature that he thought was a ball court. It was just kind of a swale in the dirt, and I thought it was a trash pit. I openly scoffed at Rob's ball court idea. But when I found the center line and dug right in the middle, I found a decapitated body. What's more, there was a turtle carapace where his head should have been. There's a famous painted pot showing the hero twins sitting on either side of a big turtle. From a crack in the turtle's back emerges their recently recapitated father as the maze god. I was wrong. Rob was right. It was a ball court complete with undeniable Popol Vuh symbolism. Maya kings loved to portray themselves playing the ball game, and the courts are almost always a prominent feature of their ceremonial centers. To me, that religiously steeped location makes them more than just secular sports courts. It makes them stages for the ritual reenactment of the Maya creation story. Religions all around the world do this. Their ceremonies reenact the key moments of their creation stories. When Catholics attend Sunday Mass, eating a little wafer and drinking wine, they say, this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ. What are they doing? They're recreating the key moments in the Christian creation story. I believe the ball courts in Maya ceremonial centers served the same purpose. Maya kings reenacted the deeds of the hero twins from the Popol Vuh, symbolically safeguarding their people from the lords of death. Just think about the massive ball court at Chichen Itza, with its wonderful carvings of teams meeting in the middle and the losing captain's head coming off. There's no way an actual ball game could be played there. It's way too big. I posit that it was never a sports arena. Instead, it was a stage for the ritual reenactment of the ball game in the Popol Vuh. By the way, some of you may have heard the story of how the winners of the Maya ball game were sacrificed, not the losers. That was a lie 
cooked up years ago by one of Chichen Itza's first tour guides. He's an old man now, and a few years ago he took credit for making it up. And he's quite proud of it. Okay, let's change gears again and talk about the Aztec ball game as witnessed by the Spanish at first contact. Again, we can't use those accounts as a blanket explanation for 2,000 years of ball games, but they are nonetheless illuminating. There are multiple chronicles that touch upon the ball game, but our best information comes from Dominican friar Diego Duran. His parents moved him to Mexico in the 1540s when he was just seven years old. They settled in Texcoco, still a fully Aztec city, and he grew up speaking Nahuatl and playing with Aztec kids. He witnessed dozens of games during his lifetime and said that each city had their own team, like the Dallas Cowboys or the Chicago Bulls. He said that cities would sometimes avoid war by settling their differences in a ball game instead. Aztec city rulers were said to play one-on-one games against other rulers and bet big on the outcomes. Sometimes they put their entire city's servitude on the line. Betting was a big part of the Aztec game. Wealthy nobles would watch the games from prime seating and wager against each other. When a game concluded, those same nobles were expected to throw jewelry and other treasures down to the winning team. If they tried to sneak out early and avoid paying the tribute, the players had the right to run them down, tackle them, and take the jewelry right off their bodies. The players were also allowed to bet on themselves, which often ended tragically. A few of them bet themselves and their families right into slavery. Duran also noted how dangerous the game was. He saw players with such bad bruises that they had to be lanced to let the blood clots out. During one game, he saw a player hit in the stomach with the ball. He coughed up blood, and within an hour, he was dead. It probably ruptured one of his organs. Now, the Spanish priests understood that the game was related to their pagan religions and eventually outlawed it. For centuries, no one played the game. It was virtually forgotten. Only the carvings on overgrown ruins remembered it. But as modern archaeology started uncovering the ball courts, tourists became fascinated with them. Modern Maya people also took an interest. Part cultural revival and part tourist trap, the Maya began trying to play the game again. Just in my lifetime, I've seen team after team created. Guatemala created a national team and those guys played in front of President George Bush. I've met that team a couple of times, and even had beers with them once at Tikal. The documentaries I've been in love to hire them for those reenactment scenes, so we keep turning up to the same shoots. There's another team in Ekbalam in Yucatan. It's really just a couple of enterprising young guys from a nearby village. Also, I've never seen it, But I hear there's a nightly ball game show at Xcaret in the Riviera Maya. 
So there were these games emerging. But then something unexpected happened. Perhaps because of the newfound popularity of ball game recreations, much older traditions emerged from the shadows. In at least two places I know, indigenous communities revealed that they'd been playing versions of the game for generations, perhaps centuries. One is in the Mexican state of Sinaloa. The people there call it Ulama. They play three different versions there. One is Ulama de Cadera, or Hip Ulama. That one is the traditional game bouncing the ball off their hips. Then there's Ulama de Antibrazo. It's played by women and with a smaller ball. They wrap their forearms with padding and hit it back and forth like that. The third is Ulama de Palo, which is a version in which they use two-handed paddles to hit it back and forth. No one in Sinaloa knows how old it is. They say they've always played it. The other one I know of is in the Etla Valley, just north of Oaxaca City. I like to take tour groups there to the archaeological site of San Jose Magote. I've been doing that for years. I noticed that they were playing a strange ball game there, not far from a 2,500-year-old ball court in the ruins, but I didn't think much of it at first. Then one year I asked about it, and they were kind enough to give us a demonstration. It's an odd game. Their ball is solid rubber and about the size of a softball. They hit it with paddles that they fashion out of heavy river cobbles. They paint them with elaborate designs and attach leather handholds so they can strap the rocks securely to the backs of their hands. I was there again with a group just earlier this month. This time, a very fit older man offered to show us the game. And I forget his name. I should have written it down. Now I'm rude and calling him old man. Sorry about that. He showed us his beautifully made rock and leather paddle and let a few of us hit the ball with it. He patiently answered our questions about the rules and joked about how important smack talk was to distracting your opponent during games. Then someone asked him how long he had been playing. He said 42 years. He went further and said that his grandfather had taught him how to play as a child. This was no game cooked up for tourists. After the trip, a couple from California showed their maid the photos. When she saw the ball game equipment, she got excited. She told them that she was born in Oaxaca and remembered her grandfather playing the same game 52 years ago. I love it when meaningful coincidences like that happen. But as I was looking at the photos of that old man's wonderful paddle, it dawned on me where I had seen it before, on the carved ball game panel at Chichen Itza's ball court. If you look closely at those carvings, you'll see that each of the players is holding an object that kind of looks like a clothes iron. It's a paddle of some sort. It's always been an odd thing to me. Were they hitting the ball with those things in their hands? Were they not just not using their hands and feet? 
Well, the paddles I just saw in Oaxaca may well be support for that idea. And in reverse, the Chichen Itza paddles may be evidence of just how old San Jose Magote's version of the game really is. This one's a neat one, so I'll try to put those images side by side in my show notes so you can compare them for yourself. Anyhow, that's about all the time I have for this episode. As usual, I have more to say, but this'll have to do for now. This is the last episode of Season 3 and the start of my summer hiatus. If you're one of my Patreon supporters, please stick with me through the summer. Season 4 will begin on September 1st, and I'm planning a special gift for those loyal supporters who stick with me through the summer. So, until then, this is Ed, signing off. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, produced, and distributed by me, Ed Barnhart. If you liked what you heard, then subscribe, like, share, comment, and do all those other things that I'm supposed to ask you to do. If you didn't, then don't do any of that stuff. And if you really liked it, support ArcheoEd through my Patreon account. I make these podcasts for free, but I am not opposed to financial support. Until next time, thanks for listening. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020.